Well, my Christmas-loving friends, I come to you today with a somber message. One that could well put a damper on this most festive time of year because, you see, war has been declared. We find ourselves in a time of war. But you didn't need me to tell you that, did you? Just look at how Starbucks gave out plain red paper cups during Christmas of 2015 instead of festively decorated ones. Just listen to all those people wishing you happy holidays or season's greetings instead of Merry Christmas. Or what about those ambiguously wintry candle or snowflake decorations in place of wreaths or angels? Yes, it's plain to see everywhere you look, there's a war on Christmas. A battle between religious liberty and political correctness. Between family values and crass commercialism. A battle fought through boycotts and memes on social media and talking heads on cable news. And if you think this is something you've been hearing about only in the last several years, then you may be surprised to find out that this actually goes back to the 60s. The, um, 1560s. But the war on Christmas back then, and the ones that followed, looked a little different from the one we're fighting today. So prepare to have your righteous indignation stoked one way or the other as we travel from the 16th century to present day and look at the history of the war on Christmas. I'm Brian Earle. This is Christmas Past. In its own way, it's become a Christmas tradition in its own right. For some people, anyway, and it goes a little something like this. Shortly after Thanksgiving, certain cable news and talk radio pundits remind you that it's time, once again, to be outraged. Sinister forces are working to take Christmas away from you, for some reason. It depends on which pundit you want to believe. Maybe it's political correctness run amok. Or a vast conspiracy from the other side of the political fence. Or a calculated secular campaign. But the first example of a war on Christmas wasn't about removing religion from public life. In fact, it was just the opposite. The first place to look would be Scotland, starting in the 1560s. Scotland was one of a number of countries during the 16th century to adopt a Calvinist form of Reformation. That's Jerry Bowler, a professor of history at the University of Manitoba and the author of Christmas in the Crosshairs. And one of the central planks in the Calvinist platform was that there would be no religious observance of anything that was not explicitly commanded in the Bible. So there was no explicit divine command to celebrate um, Easter or Christmas. So Calvinists drew a, a pretty hard line against the celebration of Christmas. You see, for much of the history of the war on Christmas, those waging it have been Puritans, claiming that Christmas is at best frivolous and at worst pagan, but either way, something that needs to be outlawed. In places like um, some parts of Switzerland, the Netherlands, Scotland, and later England and um, New England colonies, there were laws against the celebration of Christmas. You couldn't sing uh, Christmas carols. You couldn't have a particularly Christmas religious observance. You couldn't bake the traditional uh, Christmas bread or Christmas cookies. You could be fined for singing what they called uh, filthy uh, Yule carols. In parts of the Netherlands, they made particular war on the cult of saints, and that meant uh, the abolition of St. Nicholas as the um, magical Christmas gift bringer. 
that was resisted by Catholic families and by a lot of Protestant families where the kids simply said we're having too much fun. And this carried on in various ways and in various places for more than a century until history saw its most forceful crushing of Christmas yet. Probably the most violent crushing of, of Christmas came in England in the 1640s and 1650s. There was uh, a growing tension between the king, uh, Charles I of the House of Stuart, and the English Parliament. When Parliament and the king fell to civil war, part of the price for uh, Scottish aid to the rebellious parliamentary side was a ban on Christmas. So from 1645 to 1660, Christmas and its uh, celebrations were illegal in England. Shops had to remain open. Uh, there could be no uh, Christmas religious services. You couldn't put out Christmas greenery. You couldn't bake the traditional Christmas uh, pastries. And some of that puritanical element made its way across the Atlantic. A number of Puritan emigres to the Americas were anti-Christmas. Like when, in 1659, Massachusetts officially banned Christmas. Anyone caught observing Christmas in any way, shape, or form could be fined five shillings, which is about 50 bucks in today's money. It was against the law to take Christmas Day off, and even when the celebration became legal, right up until the 1870s, there was a general prejudice against celebrating Christmas, and in fact, schools were open through most of the 19th century uh, in the New England area on Christmas Day. The ban ended in 1681, but the state wouldn't recognize Christmas as a public holiday for another 175 years. Christmas became a federal holiday in America in 1870 under President Grant. And for the past 148 years, things have been going pretty well for Christmas here in America. But that hasn't been true for other parts of the world. During the 19th century, uh, there was a growing communist movement, and they tried to have what was called Red Christmases, which replaced any kind of Christian content of a midwinter ceremony with songs sung in praise of the working class and the unity of workers and so on. In the 20th century, we'll have attempts at outright banning of the holiday by communist uh, authorities. Uh, the most thorough, I guess, uh, would be in China. The Soviet Union was pretty harsh as well. The Nazis tried to co-opt Christmas to turn it pagan, but in a number of revolutionary movements in Latin America, there were attempts to nationalize Christmas, to de-Europeanize it. So they had to come up with new magical gift bringers. In Mexico, there was an insane attempt to replace St. Nicholas and the baby Jesus and Santa Claus with uh, Quetzalcoatl, an Aztec god. And uh, they even built a mock Aztec temple inside a stadium and had a huge ceremony in which Quetzalcoatl emerged to uh, place Santa Claus and give gifts to kids. But let's get back to America in the present day. According to Pew Research, 90% of Americans celebrate Christmas now, and that's been holding steady for many years. And the consulting firm Deloitte found that total holiday spending in 2016 exceeded a trillion dollars, which is almost 4% higher than the year before. And of course, Christmas programming still proliferates on network television. In fact, by any meaningful way that we have to measure things, Christmas is bigger and better than ever and only stands to get even bigger in time. So how can anyone really make a valid claim that there's some kind of war on Christmas happening? 
War is almost certainly not the right word for it, given everything we've just covered, but it actually would be unfair to dismiss the notion outright. Part of the contemporary war on Christmas is the attempt to uh, secularize the public sphere. Hardline secularists would like to see Christmas become largely something you do in the privacy of your home. And it is true that those who would seek to secularize Christmas have made some major headway. In 1984, the Supreme Court decided that religious elements of a public Christmas display were proper only if they were part of a larger holiday display that had Christmas trees, Santa, and things like that. And whatever you may think of that, you'd probably have an easy time agreeing that some other examples are a little overblown. For example, putting up a beautiful Christmas tree in uh, an art gallery prompted one professor to say that this was an attack on immigrants, that it was a message to all newcomers to the country that they were not welcome here. We have a school where they had a, a giving tree where people would bring gifts to be distributed to the poor. The tree consisted really of an abstract metallic twist, vaguely reminiscent of a Christmas tree, but that was too offensive for some who demanded that it be removed. So they had to replace the giving tree with a giving desk or the giving bookcase or something. I think those who don't want to experience Christmas have been successful in, in driving it out of the schools. The current war, well, not war, the current argument, really comes down to this. Should we remove symbols from public Christmas celebrations so that non-Christmas observers aren't marginalized for two months out of the year? Should we force the many to accommodate the few? Or should we, in the true spirit of inclusivity and freedom, let everyone practice any of their holidays however the heck they want? And that even goes for those who celebrate Christmas, where some people insist there's only one true reason for the season, and others see it as a largely cultural celebration. One of the consistent themes here on Christmas Past is that Christmas is constantly evolving. What began centuries ago as a fairly minor religious observance, and then picked up pieces of folklore and mythology as it spread across Europe, and borrowed customs and imagery from other wintertime celebrations like Saturnalia, and then was deemed too pagan or unpious and fell into a kind of disrepair before being revived and reframed by the Victorians as a family celebration filled with charity and brotherly love, and then integrated the brave new world of industrialism and mass-produced goods and gifts and shopping took center stage. People from just a handful of generations ago would look at our modern Christmas and barely recognize it. All of which is to say, in Christmas there's something for everyone and room for all of us to celebrate it in the way that's most meaningful and fulfilling to us. And that's just A-OK -okay with me. A wise person once said that you can't have harmony if everyone sings the same note. And speaking of celebrating in your own way and being your true self, it's my pleasure to share this Christmas memory from Miss Janessa J. Champagne in North Dakota. Growing up as a young queer kid in Bobells, North Dakota, there was one style icon I loved above all others, Barbie. And in 1982, the Christmas when I was four years old, there was nothing in the world I wanted more than Western Barbie. She wore a beautiful fringed white and silver jumpsuit. Her white cowboy boots had impossibly high heels. And her eyes, which were painted in the most electric shade of 1980s blue, would actually wink at you when you pressed a button on her back. I needed Western Barbie. 
I fell in love with her the first time I saw her on the thick pages of the Sears catalog. And I wrote letters to Santa every single day. I promised to behave. I promised to be nice to my brother. I promised all of my other worldly possessions. If only Santa would bring me Western Barbie. And when Christmas Eve came, I knew that my prayers had been answered. I knew that all of those letters had done some good because there under the tree was that perfect trapezoidal box. Every Barbie in the 1980s came in these fuchsia pink boxes that had this weird trapezoid shape. And there under the tree was one of those boxes. And I knew that 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 was my Western Barbie. But of course I couldn't just have her. We had to have dinner. And while we had dinner, the adults were talking and laughing and sharing stories. I was shoving mashed potatoes and turkey in my face so fast I almost choked. And of course after dinner we can't just open presents, we have to do the dishes. I watched in a veritable four-year-old rage. I swear my mother and grandmother and my aunts washed every single dish in that house whether it was dirty or not. Just as I was starting to suspect that they might have gone across the street to the neighbor's house to ask them for dishes that they could wash, it was finally time to open presents. And my excitement was growing because in my family we would open presents from youngest to oldest. And I was the youngest. I was going to get to go first. And I was going to have my western Barbie. And so I'm waiting, poised like a runner, as all of my family takes their seats and settle in. And they bring out a trash bag to collect the extra paper and ribbons. And finally my mother gives me the signal to grab the first present. And I run to the tree and I grab that trapezoid box. And I rip at the seam on the back where the tape is and I see a flash of fuchsia pink and I know that this is the moment. This is the moment where I will have western Barbie and I can see that pink and I'm ripping the paper and I feel like my mother must have used about six rolls of tape and I'm trying to get the paper off and finally the box is free and I turn it around and there in a fuchsia pink trapezoid box is western Ken. Western Ken with his flat, fat feet that would never fit into a high-heeled boot. There was no fringe on his outfit and he wasn't wearing a beautiful silver-flecked jumpsuit. He was wearing separates. And that moment in 1982, as I felt that bitter sting of disappointment staring at Western Ken, I knew in my heart that I was destined for show business. Janessa is the host of the podcast Janessa After Dark, and I have a feeling that whatever she's doing this Christmas, it is more fabulous than whatever any of us is doing. I'll put links to that podcast, her website, The World of Champagne, and other relevant links in the show notes for this episode at christmaspast.media. Christmas Past is produced in sunny San Mateo, California by yours truly, Brian Earle. Thanks to Jerry Bowler and Janessa J. Thank you for listening, and it pains me to say this, but there is more Christmas Past than Christmas yet to come for this season. That's another way of saying that there's just a small handful of episodes left but we'll make them count. Don't you worry about that. There's even going to be another episode this season dedicated just to your Christmas memories, so there's still time to send me one. Record a voice memo into your phone and send it to christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show, I would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I'll even send you a sticker to say thanks. Email me for details about that. This show is a proud member of the Christmas Podcast Network, a collection of the best Christmas shows around. Ones like Weird Christmas, 
Christmas is weird, and it used to be even weirder. So join host Craig Kringle for a celebration of all things holly, jolly, and oddly. Find out more about Weird Christmas and all the other great shows in the Christmas Podcast Network at christmaspodcastnetwork.com. Until next time, I'll look forward to connecting with you on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. You'll find links to all of that at christmaspast.media. And do join me again next time for more stories from Christmas Past.